Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. We're thrilled to be welcoming S.J. Watson as he sits down to talk with Frankie Gray about his love of reading, inspiration, being by the sea and his latest novel, Final Cut. Don't forget that you can get the latest books from every single one of our podcast episodes by heading over to the podcast section of our website. So sit back, relax and join us as we bring HIF into your home. This episode is kindly sponsored by Doubleday. Hello everybody, I'm Frankie Gray, an editor at Transworld, part of Penguin Random House and I'm delighted today to be talking to best-selling author SJ Watson. Hello Steve, hello SJ. (laughs) Hello Frankie. Um, And I'm actually going to kick off. Um, One of the things I've loved most about the Zoom world is sort of spying on people's homes and obviously (laughs) see the room behind you, Steve. So I wonder, where are you? Where are you today? I'm in Brighton. I moved here in um, November, the end of November last year. So if if I was to move my camera in any any direction, left or right, you would just see packing boxes because I still haven't unpacked. Um, but it's very nice here. So yeah, I'm I'm in Brighton, in my Lovely. in my kind of officey area, I suppose you could call it where the magic happens. Where the well, 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 yes. <laughs> Hopefully, because I haven't I haven't actually written anything here because I only moved in in November. So uh, yeah, wh- wh- where the magic will happen. Hopefully. Future magic. <laughs> Future magic, yes. Um, and I, I should provide an intro. This might make you blush, Steve. Uh, but um, S.J. Watson is, of course, the author of uh, the mega bestseller, Before I Go to Sleep, uh, Second Life, and more recently, Final Cut, which is out now in paperback. Um, so today, we'll just spend the next half an hour or so talking about your new book, Steve, Final Cut, but also about writing and, and crime fiction in general. So to kick off, let's, let's start with Final Cut. And I wondered where the idea came from. And if you, yeah, if you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, as, as you know, better than most, Frankie, having edited it, <laughs> Final Cut uh, features a documentary filmmaker called Alex, who um, goes to make her new film in a fishing village in the north of England because she wants to make a film that's really a, a ba- based on normal people, not normal, that's a terrible word, ordinary, everyday people who, are, who aren't living extraordinary lives. Um, and she wants to make this film in a slightly unusual way by inviting them to upload footage that they've shot themselves on their camera phone. So she goes, uh, she she sets up this project, but um, is coerced, shall we say, by her editor, not her editor, sorry, Freudian slip there. <laughs> <laughs> her producer, she's coerced by her producer into um, making the film in a place called Blackwood Bay, uh, which is a fictional fishing village in the north of England. Um, and reluctantly, she travels up there for reasons that, which at the beginning of the book, we don't, we don't understand why she doesn't want to go there, but it quickly becomes apparent that she has some history with the place herself. And when she's there, she becomes embroiled in the story of, uh, of um, two missing girls who've disappeared, uh, young women who've disappeared over the last decade or so. And I don't think it's giving too much away to say that fairly early on in the book, we realise that she, she has much more... Um, investment in what's going on than we at first realized and she even at first realized and that she has much more to do with the village so the book for me kind of the idea that's where the idea came from and it, it were a few places really um, one of them I've always I've always loved photography and there were two particular photo- photographic projects 
that um, I've been um, thinking about for a very long time. Uh, one is, um, I think the, pro the project itself was called Dirty Windows or something like that. Now, unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the photographer, but uh, she was staying in a, uh, an apartment block in, I think, New York. And through the window of this apartment, she could see down into, through, into and through the window of the strip club uh, opposite and into the, specifically into the bathroom of the strip club. And so she would set up her camera and take photographs um, through this window of people doing various uh, things, not going to the bathroom, but, um, you know, sex and drugs and things like that. Um, and then you couldn't see the people's faces just because of the orientation of the camera in the window. But so it was all kind of this sort of grainy black and white uh, photographs of people break, basically breaking the law. And, um, and that, I found that fascinating because it really sort of blurred the line between voyeurism and documentary and, and um, you know, these people, although they, were, they weren't identifiable, they, were, they weren't signing consent forms. They didn't know that they were being photographed, uh, which, which kind of fascinated me. And then the other one was um, a project that a Japanese photographer undertook in which she invited people who lived on the ground floor of apartment buildings to... Um, to, to partake in a project in which they would stand at an appointed time, an agreed time, they would stand in their windows looking out and she would be outside with her camera looking in. And she, she stood within the kind of circle of light so they could, they could see each other. But the, one of the um, stipulations, one of her stipulations that they weren't to meet and they weren't to speak to each other. So she would make these really quite touching and um, quite affecting portraits of people just sort of looking out of their of their windows, and again, that really kind of struck me as something that blurred the line again between voyeurism and, exp and what's exploitative and what's not. So, I was very interested in documentary um, from that as from that respect in that respect, and um, there are a couple of other documentaries as well which sort of inspired me. So, I think the place the, the, the story Final Cut the book came really from this this interest in documentary and mm -hmm. and also an interest which I, I've always had um, in well not always <laughs> I was going to say I've always had <laughs> it's a relatively new phenomenon but social media and the way mm -hmm. that people nowadays are, are, are sort of driven to um, some people anyway are driven to kind of record almost everything they do you know and I and I embrace that I, I enjoy social media myself I mean you, you know yourself that I'm always uploading things to Instagram and Twitter and whatever I mean I'm not quite at the level of uploading every single you know photo and uploading a photo of every single breakfast I have but I'm not that far <laughs> off maybe um, but that just that also just kind of fascinates me and I think with um, with Second Life I think Second Life is kind of a book about the way that social media in particular can allow you to pretend to be somebody you're not to to sort of uh, emphasize a different part of yourself perhaps or a different part of your personality mm -hmm. um, and to wear a mask really and and with this book though with final cut it's almost like i'm looking at the opposite or, or the kind of the other half of that coin which is the other side of that coin which is the way that social media i think can be very exposing and uh, can actually uh, you, you can find yourself giving away more than you intended to which is which is what happens in the book when Alex finds that through these uh, films that she's um, encouraged the villagers to upload that she discovers that there's much more going on in the village than she'd expected so that's a very long answer to the question of where I could really get the idea <laughs> I'm not even sure I've actually answered it. no you have it's, <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating and I, I think it's such a clever I know we talked about this then when I first read yeah. it um, but it's such a clever way into exploring people's lives
absolutely. And I think there's such a fascination, isn't there, with with just you know that, those insights into other people's life. I've been I've been binging on Louis through in the course of mm. <laughs> lockdown, um, and there is something about just that snapshot of of kind of ordinary people's lives. Yeah, and I think I, I've always been particularly interested in that. I mean. I love I love thriller fiction and obviously I love thriller fiction and crime fiction, but but I, I think it's it's although books in which you know you have serial killers running around with ski masks on I'm not I'm not in any way dismissing them or, or being negative about them I love those books too but I think there is something more frightening almost although that's obviously terrifying but it's probably you know it's unlikely to happen to to the average reader you know um, I think there is something more terrifying about about the kind of when extraordinary things happen to ordinary people and, and the danger or the threat comes from some something within the home or within their sort of close environment or their close circle. I think that's that's almost more more well, I think it definitely is more scary. It's more scary to me anyway than, than you know, you kind of uh, Hannibal Lecter's and, uh, and people like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as seen in the sort of the popularity of psychological thrillers and suspense, mm. I think that that's a sort of universal fascination almost, isn't it? Mm. So I wanted to, you've touched on Blackwood Bay, the setting, mm. um, and all these characters who sort of gradually reveal more about themselves and the town than they perhaps intend. And it's such a vividly drawn and evocative setting. It almost felt like, you know, it's almost a character in itself in the novel. And mm. I wondered where the inspiration for the place came from and why you wanted to, that particular setup. Uh, well, Blackwood Bay is based on a real place called uh, Robin Hood's Bay, which is in the north, in North Yorkshire, in the north of England. And uh, as people in Harrogate will certainly know, you know, it's up in that direction. Um, and I love, I love Robin Hood's Bay. I haven't been there for a while, but I went there um, quite a few times. I, I spent a, a few New Year's Eves in a row there. It's a terribly worded sentence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think especially in winter, it's a very, it's a very unusual, I find it a very unusual, a very uh, atmospheric and evocative place. Uh, as in Blackwood Bay in the book, with Robin Hood's Bay, it's, it has, it's very steep. So the village itself is kind of built into the cliffs almost. Um, and there's the main road down, but cars, I mean, they can get down there, but especially in bad weather, you know, it's not encouraged for you to drive down and there's nowhere to park down there anyway. So basically there aren't many cars around. And I think, Partly for that reason, the, when you're there in, in I'm getting confused now. When you're there in Robin Hood's Bay, it feels very much like it could be, you know, the 19th century or something, or the 18th century, because it just has this very kind of otherworldly feel to it. I think, um, and it's, you know, as I say, especially with the sea, it's very kind of atmospheric. And I think, well, that was definitely something I wanted to explore with this book because I think, quite deliberately, but with the first two books, I set them in, in a kind of, in a sort of every place if you like if that's the word but sort of mm -hmm. it could almost be anywhere yeah um the drama was very much kind of internal and, and very much within the home and so the, whether whether that home was in new york or 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 you know or um or london or anywhere it didn't it didn't really matter i suppose and i wanted with this book to to sort of i've always really loved books um in which the as you say the kind of the the setting and the location becomes almost like another character and I wanted to see whether I, I wanted to bring that into my own work and see whether I could bring that into my own work and so um, yeah that's one of the reasons why I was looking for an, a, a kind of atmospheric evocative place and Robin Hood's Bay just lent itself but the reason I fictionalized it is because as you know um, Blackwood Bay is full of pretty 
despicable people <laughs> and I thought it would be deeply ironic if I set a book in a place I loved and for that reason could never go back there because they wouldn't let me in <laughs> so, um, yeah good to make nice good to stress it's a different yeah. they're different places very yeah, different places exactly. and I thought point. I would be awful if I'd kind of inadvertently described a real person from Robin Hood's Bay and they thought I was talking about them so I thought I'll set it in a fictional place and I actually thought and I won't tell anybody that it's based on Robin Hood's Bay but I, I, I can't stop talking about it so um, yeah. yeah well so, it's so brilliant <laughs> drawn I think it's an obvious question when when thinking about the book yeah um so I, you touched on it actually when you were talking about sort of second life and final cut and it, it certainly I want to talk a little bit about identity mm. um because that's clearly a theme that runs through runs through mm. all your books um is that something that you sort of recognize that you have an interest in and and where does that stem from or is it is it just the way that the, those books have happened to turn out I, I I don't know. I think it's a bit of both, really. I mean, I can't I, I I can't pretend I don't have an interest in it because I keep on returning to those kinds of themes of identity mm. and, and 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 what not what identity is and what comprises identity and what happens when when identities are kind of fractured or 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 uncertain. And so, although it's not a kind of conscious thing, I never sort of sat down and, th and thought that that will be one of my themes that I'll return to. There, there is obviously something on a subconscious level, there's obviously something in there that I, um, I don't know if you can hear, my dog is under the desk at the moment and Lola is scratching, and she's trying to dig her way through to Australia, I think. So if you can hear that noise, that's what that is. <laughs> it's, it's oh, Lola. bless, hi Lola. <laughs> Lola at my feet, sort of digging furiously. Anyway, what was I saying? Um, so I didn't sort of sit down and, and and consciously think these are my themes, but it's definitely something which I'm obviously, I keep returning to. So I'm obviously very, very kind of conscious of and very, very, uh, it's in my psyche that I want to explore it. And it's funny because um, I was doing a, an interview with someone the other day and for the first time, I mean, that's a similar question. And for the first time, I, I think I really kind of understood, I think part of the reason perhaps that I am so intrigued by identity and how that can be a very malleable thing or a very unstable thing for some people is because, um, you know, I'm gay and I didn't come out until relatively late. Uh, well, you know, everything is relative, isn't it? But, um, and so for a long, a lot of my life, for a, a, a quite, a, quite a large percentage of my life, I, I, was, I was pretending to be somebody I'm not um, on some level or another, you know, uh, consciously or, or unconsciously, subconsciously. And so I think maybe that's one of the reasons why, because I have spent a long time, you know, because I did spend a long time um, hiding part of myself and pretending and emphasizing a different part of myself and, and so sort of wearing a mask I suppose I mm -hmm. suppose that's why masks and identity are one of the things I keep on uh, returning to or, or I'm particularly fascinated uh, by I think perhaps but mm -hmm. um, you know I don't know it's it's one of the I don't think about it too much because I think it your, the themes I think you can only really ever see the themes of a novel once it's finished. I, I don't yeah. think it's, I don't think it's the right way around to kind of go in, unless you have a very, very kind of strong idea of something you want to say, this is what you want this book to say this and to, to be a kind of a, a siren call for something. Otherwise, I think, I think you just write the characters in the story and then afterwards you think, I mean, it's quite interesting. I remember Claire Conville, my agent, as you know, but I remember Claire, when I gave her before I go to sleep, um, so we're, getting, we're now going back a long time saying where are you in this book she said to me one of the first questions and I said I'm, I'm not in this book I was absolutely positive 100% positive I'm not in this book I said I'm not in this book and then sort of three or four years later once it had been out and sort of it had been read around the world and everything 
um, I realized I'm on every page of before I go to sleep. It's just that mm. I couldn't see it at the time. It's only afterwards that I think you go back in and you go, oh, that's why I wrote that book at that time. You know, when you, for me anyway, I can't speak for anybody else, obviously, but for me anyway, when I'm writing, I'm just writing a story as well as I can. Um, and it's only afterwards I understand, ah, that's why it's that story. And that's why that happened. And that's why this character is the person who, who um, I was drawn to. So, yeah, I don't think about yeah. it too much. That's fascinating, isn't it? To think what, what sort of an author is aware of and their intention as they're writing mm. and then what becomes apparent to them afterwards. And it's certainly something, you know, when I read a first draft, often I'll ask an author kind of, which bit did you most enjoy or which character mm. do you like the best? Because nine times out of 10, I, I can guess. It, yeah, it yeah. I remember you said that to me actually. I think that when you read, I can't remember which draft it was, but very early on, I remember you said to me, "What did I most, what, what did I most love about writing it, or something, some question like that." So yeah, yeah. And um, then it's about bringing out more of that. And actually, yeah. you could answer that question now. Which, which sort of aspect of Final Cut did you like writing? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it was a while ago. <laughs> it was a while. Well, that's a strange thing. It was a while ago, wasn't it? It was sort of a year ago, I think, when it was finally sort of signed off as being done pretty mm. much you know um it's interesting because it, a lot of, a lot of the stuff i i remember i i really enjoyed writing the past sections when when we go back and see alex's kind of um journey to 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 you know her, his, her history i suppose um i don't think it's given too much away so she was homeless for a while and i kind of enjoyed writing those sections um I think that might be because I was, because I, I wrote them fairly late on, they came, kind of came towards the end of the drafting process. Mm -hmm. So I think perhaps because I, by then I understood, I knew Alex very well as a character and I understood her. And so it, it, those sections kind of felt quite easy, I suppose, because maybe, maybe I thought about them in a lot of detail because it, in order to, I don't know if I'm waffling now, but in order to write in order to write the present day sections i've had to you know i think you have to think well how did this person get like this what happened to them that made them like this and often those things yeah and and often those things don't go in the book you just kind of know okay she went here to school and mm -hmm. she, this thing happened when she was 16 and this thing happened to her which really traumatized her and and you know she fell in love with this person then and they jumped her you know whatever it might be you kind of know those things on some level but they don't go in the book. And I think actually what I one of the things I did enjoy about writing Final Cut was putting some of that in the book. Because mm -hmm. I think it, it needed to be there to understand her story. Um, but I think yeah. it, just made, it, meant, it gave her another life, I suppose. Big, bigger than the life that I... I don't know, she just... I think it just round, really rounded her out for me. So I really enjoyed those sections. Mm -hmm. And I think they, well, they really add to the story, don't they? Um, I, I, I think again, so, it, speaks yeah. to, it speaks to, you know, the aspects that you enjoy, giving you the chance to explore mm. in more detail has really, you know, it's paid mm. off on the page. And also, I quite like the idea that I could play with other forms. So, you know, as you know, there, is, there, is, there, is a, there are letters in there from her psychotherapist or psych, psychiatrist or psychotherapist. You know, there are report, clinical reports you know, in there and newspaper reports, which, which kind of, again, sort of shine a light on the story, but from a different angle or a different perspective, which was quite, that was quite fun to do as well. Um, 
especially the, especially the the medical report because I used to I, I, I as you may know I used to work in the health service so I used to have to write reports and it's quite a different style of writing because they they by definition they have to be uh, uh, very dry very factual um, in the passive voice you know it's 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 never I did this test on such and such it's always this test was done on mm -hmm. uh, so it was kind of fun to revisit that style of writing and say oh, I wonder if I can still do this. Um, albeit only for two two pages or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just try something a bit different. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your writing process, if that's all mm. right, Steve. And I mean, we've we've obviously touched on kind of where the initial idea for Final Cut came from. Um, but I wondered, and maybe maybe it's different for each of your books. But if there is a sort of starting point for you with a new novel that you sort of you sit down and you think, what should I write or the idea just comes to you in your dreams mm. i don't know <laughs> no it's, um, what's it's your starting dream. point it's not dreams i do i do sometimes have, have have ideas in dreams but um then i wake up and i think i've been doing a lot a, a bit of reading about dreams recently or, or maybe i know i think it was a documentary i watched anyway but it was talking about one of the things that happens when you dream is that the kind of critical part of your brain gets switched off so mm. the bit that says this is no good gets switched off so i have had some wonderful ideas whilst i've been asleep as in in mm. dreams and then occasionally i keep a notebook, notebook by the bed and occasionally i've woken up and managed to remember the idea and jotted it down before i fall up either fall back to sleep or, or get up and get on with the day but then almost at least if not every single time i then revisited the idea or the, the note i've made and it's been utter drivel Absolutely. <laughs> um i remember when i was editing i think second life I had, a, I had a brainwave in the middle of the night and woke up and I wrote it down and I went back to sleep. And then the next morning I found I'd written down, make everything more orange. <laughs> and I don't know what I meant. I mean, I have no idea what I meant. <laughs> more orange. So, yeah, so dreams. Uh, no, dreams aren't the source of things. Um, not yet. Not yet. You never know. Unless one it, day. Could, it could pay off in the future. One of the, yeah. Or there could just be an orange book. Could be an orange book, yeah, exactly. Um, I, it varies before I go to sleep came to me that's the that's the kind of the most sort of blinding flash moment as in as in it was an obituary that I read and and the character of Christine came there and then really I just I just imagined this woman looking in a mirror and not and seeing someone seeing somebody uh reflected back who was much older than she was expecting uh, and and you know that that's not the story of course that's just the character and the and the 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 um the igniting spark or you know but that that came to me in a kind of yeah in a in a in a moment really um and the other two books have been a bit more gradual um i think with me it's kind of i'll get i often get an image and think i mean it's weird like with with sec, uh, with final cut rather the image I had it was related to the to the um, the photography project I mentioned with the woman who yeah. was taking photos through the window, as in as in of people standing looking out, not not the strip club window, the other one. And I I kind of because I read about that project years and years and years ago, and I just thought on some level it would be really interesting to write a story or to have a book in which these characters Im impact on each other and maybe affect each other's lives but not in an obvious way i know that's not really making sense because i don't really know myself what i mean by that but i think i just there was something there there was something in this idea i kind of imagined the character uh, uh, um, of david in the book he kind of came first because 
And I suppose way back, and we're going back years now, I kind of imagined him to be the person standing in the window looking out and Alex, mm -hmm. I suppose, as she became, to be the photographer. So that was a kind of a kind of starting point, I suppose, which went to my notebook. And then, but then obviously it evolved massively in the intervening, you know, however, however long it was. Um, but I think that's what tends to happen. I, I will get a sort of a, a little itch or, or, or a kind of an, uh, there'll be an idea and it'll kind of, I always think the best ideas are kind of magnetic. So they attract other ideas to them. And um, I mean, I know some authors will, will sort of, well, they don't write ideas down. The idea being, their, their, their reason for that being, if the idea is good enough, they'll remember it. I, I'm not that brave because <laughs> there are too many. <laughs> There are too many things I've, I've thought, oh, that's such a good idea. There's no way I'm going to forget that. And then half an hour later, you know, I'm having a conversation with someone and half an hour later, I'm like, well, what's that? What on earth was I thinking? And I've completely lost it. So I do always write things down. But um, there are some ideas that I can't, I just can't quite let go of. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with both uh, Final Cut and Second Life, it, it was more that. It was more a, a relatively minor thing. But then it kind of started, it kind of did, wouldn't, I couldn't let go of it. And then, and then other things started to arrive, which kind of fitted in with that first idea or, or changed it slightly, but felt part of a bigger whole. I know I'm not really explaining it very well, but yeah, it was much, much less of a kind of uh, light bulb moment and more of a mm -hmm. gradual accumulation of things which seemed to fit together, I suppose. Yeah, I love that description of an idea being magnetic and a, mm. attracting other ideas to it. What a... What yeah. a great thing. I'm lucky yeah. if I have one idea. <laughs> and I'm not a writer, sorry, I should say, not <laughs> writing, just in general. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to ask? Oh, yes, I, I think, is this right, that you've handwritten your last two books? No, last? just the last one. Just the last one, no, okay, which is yeah. not Final Cut. The, which is not Final Cut. The one no, that the is one, to come. The one that um, is, but is I just come, was yeah. fascinated by that. And how, how did you find that experience, sort of, how did it differ from going straight onto the... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a great, I'm a great believer, and this is something I say to, when, whenever kind of aspiring writers, or you know, whenever I do uh, mentoring or anything like that, I always think, I always say to people, don't be too wedded to your idea of what your what your routine is, because I think, for me anyway, what I found is every, each book has required a slightly different, different process or a different. It, it, I, I don't. I don't think you learn how to write. I think you learn how to write the book you're currently working on. And then you need to learn how to write the next book when you come in to write the next book. So I, I try and try and not have a fixed idea of, of like, well, I write at this time of the day and I always, you know, light a candle and I always use this type of pen and this type of notepad. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those kind of rituals. And I think anything that gets, gets you from, from not writing mode into writing mode helps. But um, I don't know. I just, I just fancied... With the last book that I've written, which not, as you say, is not Final Cut, I just fancied doing something different. And I thought, because actually thinking about it, yeah, I did try writing Final Cut longhand, but it just didn't really work. Um, so for about three weeks at the very beginning, I think I was writing it longhand and then typing it in and it just didn't really work. But I think partly because I've, what I have found is, is I've become more of a planner with each book. So mm -hmm. uh, before I go to sleep, it was kind of, I knew the beginning, knew the end, and it would... I, actually no I didn't really know very much else when I started to write it so a lot of that but it was kind of trial and error and I, and I discovered it by writing but with each book I've become more of a planner and the new one um, I planned out in quite a lot of detail so I kind of pretty much had a roadmap from beginning to end and so I thought actually I'm going to just handwrite this 
And it was also partly a practical thing because oh, I, th I, th I thought I'm going to try handwriting it anyway. And I thought I'm going to, I'll try and handwrite the whole book. Um, and then, and then I'll type it in. And as I type it in, I thought to myself, I won't type in stuff because I don't enjoy typing necessarily. So I won't type in stuff that is, doesn't absolutely have to be there. So in a way it was a kind of way of tricking myself into getting rid of some of the crap before it even, even got through to the, to the word document stage. Uh, if that makes sense. But also it was a kind of practical thing yeah. because um, I started writing it in, in um, April of last year. And obviously we went into lockdown in the middle of March and we had quite nice weather mm -hmm. the summer. So, and I was lucky enough to have, to be living in, in, a, in, in a house that had a really nice garden. And I thought I'm gonna go and sit, I want to be able to sit in the garden and write my book. Uh, which I did, but I, I can't do that with a screen because it's just I end up squinting at the screen. It's just a yeah. pain in the backside. So a lot of it was just a practical. I can I can use my notepad and I can write longhand. And but once I'd started it, I did find it. It seemed to. I think I think the editing part of your brain and the creative writing part of your brain are quite separate for me, and and so. What I did find doing it, writing it longhand meant that I, I, cause you can't edit, obviously, you know, you can, you can, yeah. you can go back and change your word here and there. And, and I would draw arrows to say, oh, this, this bit of the paragraph probably should go earlier or this, you know, so very kind of crude editing of like, uh, this is what I'll change when I come to type it in. But then, but most of it, it was just kind of forward momentum of putting words down on the page. And, and I find when I write, um, things directly onto the computer there's a I have to consciously try and stop myself from going well there's probably a better word there I could use so what would that be and then because that takes me out slightly of the telling of the story because um, I then get focused on whether whether this word should be you know moved or maneuvered or you know whatever and mm -hmm. so that and that's not the creative kind of like let's put put the words down and get the story out so I have to consciously try not to do that so i think it, did, it was a good way of switching off the critical editing part because i could write in a weird way i thought i could write i can write any old rubbish because a i'm the only person who's ever going to be able to read this because my handwriting is so bad <laughs> <laughs> that you know um but but joking aside i thought also you know i'm going to type all this in and when i type it mm. in decide which is the best word when i type it in i can decide oh you know actually have i got the right the right image here or the right you know or and so it felt much more freeing mm. yeah liberating yeah it's interesting actually it it sort of like what you were saying about dreams in a way the sort of the role that the critical part of our brain mm. has in in holding back creativity that you know like you said when you're asleep and you're dreaming that bit switched off and and for you obviously handwriting Mm. Or being faced with a blank word document page. <laughs> Something else um, I found that was really. I, I went. I did a. I did a two week fast. Um, oh wow! Yeah, but was it three years ago, three four years ago, um, and oh, it was sort of medically supervised and everything. Was at a clinic in Germany, uh, and it was a most amazing experience. But what I found was really really weird. Was it did completely switch off the critical bit of my brain that is always saying that's a terrible idea that's been done before what, why do you think you know why do you think that's going to be interesting to anybody I, I it was a really strange kind of situation after about a week of no food 
I'd suddenly, mm. I'd, everything would seem alive with possibility. I would kind of think, oh, I could write it. I could write a thriller about, about uh, tables. <laughs> you know, everything was, I mean, I'm not saying everything was a great idea, but that bit that was sort of stopping thoughts in their tracks and going, don't go any further down that road because it doesn't lead anywhere. That sort of seemed to be switched off. Uh, it's mm. very weird, very weird experience. I bet. I think, like, That's fascinating weird. though. I think yeah. you'd sort of think that it would, your mind would just focus in on the hunger and the sort of the desire well, for food. You, you but actually, really, the, yeah, we're going to start getting off topic now, aren't we? But you don't, you don't feel hungry at all after, after about three days because your, brain, your body goes into, um, into uh, fat digestion mode. So you're not hungry because you're eating. You're just not oh, eating wow. external you know you're not having to put stuff in you're you're uh, relying on your on your existing reserve so you don't actually feel hungry and it was weird i started i was like i'm not someone who normally goes to the gym twice a day or even twice a week <laughs> or necessarily twice a month um but i was i was like swimming every day going for a long walk every day and and going to the gym and going on the running machine every day it's weird because you'd think having no food in me i would have no energy but it was the opposite so, yeah, Gosh, yeah. that's fascinating. But as you say, we should stay on top. That was my fault. Sorry, I'm just too interested. We we'll save this for a future. We could do yes. a podcast on fasting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so yes, back back on topic. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about before I go to sleep and and the film. Because um, mm. we've talked a lot about your process writing, but that must have been very different indeed to sort of see your creation taken on by somebody else. And how did you yeah. find that? Was it difficult, or was it just well, it wasn't difficult because I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> I mean, it was great because of that. I mean, I'm joking, obviously, but, but um, first of all, kind of, I didn't write the screenplay, so I didn't have any kind of any, any and, and, and also contractually, I had no say in anything. I mean, the contract that you sign, and that's the way it has to be because, you know, you can't have a situation in which, in which uh, they just come to me and said, oh, we've got Nicole Kidman, and she's, she wants, she'd love to play Christine, and I go, well, I don't like her, so no. You know, not that I would have done because I do like Nicole Kidman. I think she's great, but you know, you, you kind of have to have to kind of uh, give up all, all say in anything. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I did have a good working relationship with Rowan, who wrote and, and directed it, and with Liza, who was the producer, and they did include me and they did talk to me about stuff. So I, I felt kind of involved and and as if I was I was being consulted, but without actually having any any kind of um, anything to lose really, because I. It was for me. It was a win-win because I just thought if they make a great film, which I think they did, I thought, yeah, I absolutely. Just say, yeah, I wrote the book. <laughs> Isn't it great? Whereas if they made a terrible film, you know, I could just go nothing to do with me. You know, it wasn't me. Um, so it was yeah. kind of it was I was it was win-win. But it was a, it was an amazingly it was a very very exciting process, as I'm sure you can imagine. You know, I mm -hmm. I I never dreamt that I would. I mean, I remember watching the lord of the rings x dvd extras because i more so before back then but i used to be a bit more kind of a geek so i would watch dvd extras of, of everything and so i watched it and i remember like the footage of them shooting the movies and thinking oh it just looks so much fun i mean it's when i was working in the hospital i remember thinking oh it just looks so much fun to be in a film set and i wish i'd sort of done something maybe I should have done something different. That means I could, could have been on a film set. And I mean, I'm not talking about being an actor because I cannot act to save my life. But I suppose I thought, you know, maybe I could have used my physics degree to train to be a camera person or a sound person. You know, I don't know what, but it just looks so exciting to be making films. And then like fast forward to whenever, 2012 was it they made it, I think, or shot it? Anyway, whenever it was. And I'm sat there on a film set 
not only am I sat there on a film set, and that's, I found that incredibly exciting anyway, just to be there. And, you know, I was getting excited by the mm, sight of walking around with cables, never mind actors, you know, just yeah. to be there generally. But um, not only was I on a film set, but, but there was Nicole Kidman, who is, you know, obviously a tremendous actor and, and has Oscar winning, you know, has won Oscars and just is a star, basically. And she there as well in the same room. <laughs> but she's there dressed as a character that I invented and it was and, and saying words that okay the words themselves didn't necessarily directly come from my head but telling a story that came from my mm. from my head and it was just like this is so weird and just kind of wonderful um so I just kind of I just enjoyed the whole process really I think Liza Marshall kind of made the mistake of telling me that I could turn up on set whenever I wanted to <laughs> uh, it was made in West London uh, in um not in Pine, was it Pine? Anyway, I can't remember. It was made in West London, in studio in West London. And um, yeah, so it wasn't that long a journey. So, I mean, I wasn't there quite every day, but I mean, I had my own <laughs> chair. But I mean, seriously, I, I actually had my own chair. So. Oh, amazing. And I think the first oh. day I was there, everyone thought, oh God, the author's in, probably make sure we're doing everything right. And I think they were worried that I was going to go, well, you know, you've got the colour of that carpet wrong. It shouldn't really be that shade of brown. It should be more, you know, or whatever. And mm. But I wasn't, I was just there almost like, you know, the equivalent of just sitting there with a with a tub of popcorn on the lap, just going, oh, this is amazing. Enjoying the process. Yeah, exactly. Wow, yeah. it's such a such a brilliant film. Mm, oh, thank you. Well, I say, I say thank you. I sort of feel like it had nothing to do with me, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should. I've just realised the time we've been chatting away, so I'll just <laughs> I'm just going to ask you a few more questions if mm. that's okay. Keep just a quick fire round. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about crime, crime thriller fiction more generally because i know you're a you're an avid reader mm. even and incredibly supportive of other writers so i wondered if there was anything particular that you'd read recently that you had particularly stood out for you what have you been enjoying in yeah there are, two, there are two debuts coming up uh both of which i thought were really 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 good and um i think the authors in both cases have got huge bright futures and one of them is anna bailey and she has a book out called tall bones which i think one of these is out in March, one of them is out in April, and I can't remember which way around it is. Uh, but anyway, Tall Bones is out in March or April, and it's, it's really great. And it, it actually, it reminded me a little bit of Final Cut, in as much as kind of small town, tension simmering, mm. lots of, lots of uh, intrigue, and what really happened, and, and what's really going on, and who, who, is, who is who, and what is what. So I know I haven't explained that very well, but uh, it's a really good book. So Anna Bailey, Tall Bones. And then the other one is Emma Stonix, I think it's pronounced, uh, who has a book out, which I think is the one that's out in March. It's called The Lamplighters. Uh, okay. And it's based on a true story uh, of some lighthouse keepers who disappeared off uh, one of those tower lighthouses that are built on rocks in the middle of the sea um, off the coast of uh, Cornwall, I think. And uh, it's a really great, it's, first of all, it's brilliantly written, as is the Anna Bailey book, it's both brilliantly written. Um, and The Lamplighters is a really great mix of love story, thriller story, mystery, uh, locked room mystery specifically, and uh, and ghost story. So it's kind of, it's got a bit of everything really. And um, and I, I highly recommend both of those books. And I think, I think they're both going to do very well. So I'm excited for, for those two to see what happens. Brilliant. I'll have to have to give them a read. It sounds like setting again is a big part of yeah, those, those I mean, bits, much like Final Cut. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
I, I think I do, I do, which is weird because the first two books didn't really have this, but yeah, I think I do like a book which has an unusual setting or is a very, as if has a very well rendered setting or, you know, where you really feel like, I remember one of your early comments, Frankie, was that you, when you read Final Cut, you said that you felt almost like you could pop down to Euston Station and get on a train and, and go and visit Blackwood Bay. And that was one of the, you know, that was a really great compliment because I thought, oh, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted it to feel like a real place that you would mm -hmm. recognise if you were there, um, even though it's yeah. not. And both of these books do that as well. Yeah, maybe maybe also you're drawn more to setting at the moment in your reading, at least, because um, mm. you're stuck at home. Do you think? Yes. Have you noticed any sort of shifts in your reading tastes in lockdown? Um, not in my reading tastes as as such. Apart from one specific example of I began to read. This is going back four years now, obviously, but and so we're not talking about COVID now. But um, I began to read. Oh, what was it? I think it was Alone in Berlin, and then Trump got in. And I thought I can't read this. It feels too too much like. Um, <laughs> it might it might kind of come true uh, or happen again um so i gave that up but no not really um i tend to be quite sort of i'm just surrounded by books i mean that's one thing that moving house has really taught me i might i don't know why i bother to label my, my boxes I, I might as well just labeled all the boxes of books <laughs> and, then, and then two of the boxes are not books <laughs> it's like I've got so many books and lots of them are unread so yeah, I'm waffling but yeah so I haven't really noticed my, my reading taste change but there is something you know reading is always a bit slightly escapist isn't it so mm -hmm. um you know I wouldn't I wouldn't I suppose I don't know that now I would necessarily pick up a dystopia for example mm -hmm. especially one that featured global pandemics <laughs> I think yes. that's feel a bit too real at the moment. So yeah, um, give it some yeah. time. Give it some time. Need, yeah, we need some time and space. Mm. And is there a particular? I was just interested to know: is there a particular crime thriller writer that particular particularly inspired you? I guess sort of either now, but also early on, kind of before you um, started writing. I don't know really. I mean, I think it, it, it tends to be, I think, books more than more than writers right. that inspire me, perhaps. But, you know, I read, I read, I mean, one of, the, one of my earliest reading memories, actually, was reading um, Agatha Christie's The Mirror Cracked. And I didn't know what to expect. And I, I'm, I think I was probably, I don't know, I, will, I was probably 10, 11, 12 years away, something like that. Mm. And the twist in that book just blew me away. And even thinking about it now, I get a tingle because I just think it's so clever. <laughs> um, so that's one book and I, you know a lot, a lot of Agatha Christie I, I sort of I don't I don't mind but I wouldn't necessarily say I was a fan perhaps so I wouldn't say as a writer she's inspired her, but there are certain books of hers that I'm like yeah that's like really clever and that I would mm -hmm. like to do something like that um, and, and I suppose similar thinking about twists um, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters is another one that again when I read that book and the twist the twist happened I was like oh my goodness you know, um, so it's things like that. But I wouldn't say particular writers as such. I mean, I love Patricia Highsmith, um, mm. you know. Uh, but I mean, there's lots of those I haven't read. Um, they're on your bookshelves. They've just on, come out yeah, of exactly. the, the boxes right. of books. <laughs> they, actually, they actually are. <laughs> I have I've even got to the slightly ridiculous and, and, and I'm slightly ashamed to admit this point. I end up, I've, I've bought, not that often, but I bought books and then thought, oh, I've already got this. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and on, I went on a holiday earlier in the year and I excitedly bought uh, The Silent Patient, is it called? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 
And yeah. um, sorry, I had a mind. I mean, that is a book. I don't know yeah, if it's yeah, the one. Yeah, no, it was that one. <laughs> My mind went blank because yeah. everyone was reading it. Everyone was talking about how great it was, and and I was like, I've got to read this book because everyone's talking about it, and I'm so far behind the curve because everyone else has moved on. But I'll take it on holiday. It feels like a holiday read. I I, I got three pages in, and thought I've read this, and I'd read the proof. <laughs> <laughs> the editor had sent me the proof of the book, so I'd like read it four years before everybody else, <laughs> or, or a year before everybody else, or whatever. Um, so yeah, so yes, too many books. But, yeah. <laughs> too many books, too little time. Yeah. And speaking of time, we're almost out of time, but I'm going <laughs> to ask you one question about Harrogate as we're <laughs> as mm. we're talking today in aid of Harrogate International Festivals. Yeah. Um, I know that it's a Harrogate Crime Festival is something you love. Steve, mm, as do I. I absolutely do, yeah. <laughs> um, and what is it, I mean, obviously, at the moment, what makes it unique is that people are allowed to be near each other in, <laughs> in one place. <laughs> yeah. um, but what is it that you think makes the, the Harrogate Crime Festival so special and unique? I, th I think it's, it, for me, it's the fact that it's just got such a great atmosphere because you have... Uh, Everyone who loves crime fiction, whether they be a reader of crime fiction or a writer of crime fiction or an editor of crime fiction or a mm. publicist who works in you know, anyone in, on, on the publishing side, the writing side, the reading side, they all just hang out in the bar and, and chat to each other. There's no kind of sense like you get at most festivals, I would say, if not almost all other other festivals where, you know, the kind of the author drops in and goes to the green room and then and then goes on the stage does their thing goes and sits behind a table to sign some books and then disappears back to the hotel or 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 at least back into the green room you know safely tucked away from from readers or, and, and the audience and i think it, harrogate's wonderful because everyone just mingles and chats and you know uh, and i think that's a, such a really great atmosphere that i certainly love that because i just i love reading and that's what i'm really missing actually in publishing um, Final Cut during the pandemic is just going out and meeting readers and and having a chat about about fiction and writing and books mm. and, and you know that because that's what we all share don't we um, yeah so that's what I think Harrogate does really really well and the fact it's it's in such a beautiful part of the world uh, kind of helps too um, and I also love the fact it's not it's not London you know, I'd love London. Mm. You know, I lived in London for a long time. I do love London, but I like the fact that Harrogate is is not in London. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, so yeah, I just think it's 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 got a unique. I've never come across anything like it actually. So yeah, mm. I love. I do love Harrogate. Well, that's a that's a nice note to end on. Here's to <laughs> mingling and chatting in the future. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it feels like almost. Like, oh my god, you know, I can't imagine it. But I mean, yeah, I'm, I I have faith and confidence that we will we will we will be back there again. <laughs> Yeah, we will, we will all meet that, again. Crushed into and the we'll bar. All be at Harrogate yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Steve. It was well, lovely to you. talk to you. Um, and thank you all for listening, all of you out there somewhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank and you very and much. Steve's new book, Final Cut, is out now in paperback. Thanks for reaching the end of the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. It would be great if you could do us a quick favour and head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five star and then leave a nice glowing review. It'll help boost the podcast up the charts, which makes it easier for more people to find us and join our exciting podcast community.